Welcome to Endless, a Sandman podcast from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert and smack-talking demon, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm writer, erstwhile DC Comics editor, and garrulous toadstool, Elisa Quitney. Today on Endless, we're going to be talking about Season of Mists, epilogue, issue 28 from the Sandman comic book series. Season of Mists epilogue was written by Neil Gaiman, penciled by Mike Dringenberg, inked by George Pratt, colored by Daniel Vazo, and lettered by Todd Klein. This issue was edited by Karen Berger, assisted by Elisa Quitney, cover by Dave McKean. I doubt he'll give me a second thought. Well, I'll be in damp old fairy with no one to talk to but simple-minded giants and garrulous toadstools. Time to wake up. In this epilogue to Season of Mists, the damned are returning to hell, as Duma and Remiel adapt to their new responsibilities in different ways. Duma opts for stoic acceptance, lying back in a surprisingly seductive pose and looking blissfully detached. Remiel, restless and miserable, is still struggling to find a silver lining to this unwanted assignment. Back in the dreaming, Morpheus is also restless as he waits for Nada to join him for dinner. As a first course, the Sandman offers a grudging apology of the I might have acted wrongly variety, which Nada responds to with a roundhouse slap. At first, the Dream Lord is enraged. Nada is uncowed. What will you do to me, Dream Lord? Send me back to hell? This brings him to his senses, to his true sense of how deeply he has wronged his ex-lover. His second apology is heartfelt and Nada responds by kissing him. Clearly, there is still love between the two. And yet when Morpheus offers her the chance to be his queen, she counters with a different offer, abandon his post and choose a new life with her. The two exes are at the same impasse they faced 10,000 years earlier, but now they accept that they must go separate ways with equanimity. Meanwhile, Lord Susano Ono Mikoto, the Japanese storm god, is quietly taking his leave when Morpheus confronts him, calling out his true identity, Loki. Turns out the trickster god disguised himself and switched places with the Floating Kingdom's emissary. Pay attention now, kids, leaving Lord Susano to take Loki's place back in the cave with the serpent dripping poison on him. In a surprising move, Dream offers to save Loki by replacing Lord Susano with a dream version of Loki. In return, though, Loki would owe Morpheus a favor. While Loki accepts this bargain without a second thought, the fairy woman Nula is not so thrilled with her situation. Her brother had neglected to mention that Nula would not be returning to fairy. As a gift from Queen Titania, Nula is to remain in the dreaming. Making matters worse, Morpheus insists Nula remove her glamour, which means she goes from blonde bombshell to bedraggled waif. Nula cries at the prospect of leaving her ne'er-do-well brother, but Nada is more composed at the prospect of major life change. She even questions whether she, like the other damned souls in hell, could have simply walked away. Morpheus pledges to love her in whatsoever body she wears and attends her birth as a young Asian male in Hong Kong. On a beach in Perth, Australia, an old man sits behind the handsome young blonde man admiring the sunset. I've had a shit of a life, the old man says, gazing out at the changing colors of the sky. All things considered, it wasn't fair. Everyone I've ever loved is dead and my leg hurts all the bloody time. But I think any god that can do sunsets like that, a different one every night, struth, well, you got to respect the old bastard, haven't you? After the old man leaves, the blonde man sits in silence for a moment, and then the devil, because of course that's who the blonde man is, or was, gives God his due. I admit it, says Lucifer, the sunsets are bloody marvelous. Meanwhile, one half of the current leadership in hell is discovering new purpose. From now on, Remiel informs the demons and the damned, there will be no more wanton violence. From here on in, all torture will be done in the name of redeeming sinners. But don't you understand, wills one of the tortured souls, that makes it worse. Unperturbed, Remiel is content in what he has decided to view as the best of all possible worlds. This closes the chapter in Destiny's book, but our chapter ends with a final quote from a book that G.K. Chesterton never wrote, but which exists in Lucien's Library of Dreams. 
All right. Well, before we get started today, uh, we want to let you know that Endless is going on a bit of a hiatus. We are anticipating the television series start date, hopefully to be announced soon so we can start to make plans. Uh, but we've got to be able to plan for everything to come. Um, that said, for Patreon supporters, Tripperish Media will be active uh, most Saturdays with live watches where we all gather in Discord and watch a movie together. Uh, and a couple of Ask Me Anythings with Tripperish hosts. I have currently roped Joshua Unruh in for one of those, and I'm hoping to get Elisa in for one. Um, so if you are not already a Patreon supporter, now is a great time to sign up because everything we're doing in the next month or so will be solely for supporters. Uh, but hang in there. In June, there will be more news of things coming. And for anyone who loves comic books, you'll be happy about that news. I have a few things uh, in the hopper uh, working that way. But now we're going to talk about this comic book, specifically Sandman Season of Miss Epilogue. Elisa, what'd you think? Well, Ending a Big Thrones and Pawns drama, it's not easy. You know, you have to balance these big, you know, crescendo moments with the smaller personal ones. And you have to give things enough space so that decisions, you know, characters come to things in a way that feels organic and not just manipulated. Game of Thrones writers, I'm looking at you. (laughs) This ending works. It works for me. Yeah, I like it. Um, there's a lot of great stuff here. Um, I love Loki's resolution. Most of it, I have some issues with it, which I'll deal with when we talk about that a little bit later. Um, Lucifer on the beach, just hanging out with a dude and watching the sunset is such a wonderful moment. And when he just gives it up to God, um, I, I kind of love that. And Lucifer wandering around without purpose, I think is a really interesting, you know, thing that can spawn some good stories. I'm hoping that we'll see more of that. Um, I love Remiel and Duma in Hell. Um, Remiel getting into it, developing his own narrative of what it means, you know, that he's there. Um, And what's funny is that there is that moment, right, where uh, he's like, this is what it means. It's for redemption. It's to redeem sinners. It's to make you better. It's because we love you, right? Um, And then to have the guy who's being tortured be like, that makes it worse. Um, The power of a narrative is so absolute. Um, and I I love that Remiel is, basically we keep going back to him in Hal as he's weaving this narrative of what it means that he and Duma are in Hal and he's giving it all of this meaning when in essence, it's the same shit, different day. It's the same torture. It's the same demons. So interesting. Absolutely love that. Um, and seeing Remiel in the course of this, you know, issue going dark by reaching for light in hell, like, that is such a an amazingly masterful dismount. Like Simone Biles would be jealous of that dismount. This is wild, and I absolutely love it. Um, I do think that this issue does not a Nula dirty. It does Sijin dirty too, which is something that we'll talk about when we get there. Um, but overall, though, I gotta say, like, there's so much stuff here that I genuinely love. Season of Mist has just been such a fun romp from beginning to end. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, um, I have no idea what I was going to say. (laughs) That's okay. You can take us right into the cover art. Yes. And let's talk about the cover. You know, you've said in the past that, you know, this cover or that cover was your favorite. This, this one actually may be my favorite. It's, um, Mm -hmm. a study in blues and whites. We get the figure of a cat-eyed Sandman containing a female figure, Nada, presumably, in what feels like a protective embrace. Uh, there are letters. I, I don't know to recognize if they're Chinese or Japanese or something else, actually. Um, they, they are really, really red, and they kind of match the red of Nada's lips. And so we get this kind of bright, passionate dash of color and the cool melancholy of the blues and whites. Um I don't know for sure. I didn't speak to Dave about this, but I asked um, another artist and the effect of this cover might have been the result of a photograph or a painting treated with water and then painted with acrylic. And it looks like McKean scratched Nada's shape into the paint. So this is sort of a, a layering of different techniques and there's some gold mm-hmm. or copper leaf around. 
And I think it, you know, you feel all the different ways in which this image has been formed. And it it seems sort of fitting for a, a story in which we've had all these different high and low elements all coming together. Yeah, I love it. I mean, I think this this cover is so cool and beautifully designed. Um, the idea that he scratched Nada into the paint, I think, is so interesting that she is um, kind of, you know, curled up in this sort of safe space within dream, you know, which I think is kind of interesting. Um, and, you know, I, I like that she looks like she's resting. I mean, good God, she deserves some rest after what she's been through. Uh, I was really interested in the symbols. I am not going to confess completely to how much time I spent getting a like taking a picture of the cover and then like cutting the symbols out in photoshop and trying to run them through some kind of ocr the only thing that i found is that the the one symbol in the middle looks a lot like the kanji symbol for life um the other ones i could not find it just the the lines were not clear enough they do look like either japanese or chinese characters i'm not really sure i would presume japanese because of the storm god you know um, but honestly, and, and the, it is kanji, the symbol for life is kanji. So, I mean, that's the Japanese symbol, but, um, I could not figure out the others. If there's anybody out there who knows, like, I am dying to know what those symbols actually mean. Um, but I thought they were so beautiful and so cool. And I really in, enjoyed that. And there's a nipple. And I just, I, I didn't write this in the notes, <laughs> but I remember Curtis King, the, the cover editor, always coming in and saying, <laughs> You guys are always sneaking in nipples and getting me in trouble. <laughs> it's Nipple Watch 1991. It was, yes. it was yeah, a subtle, <laughs> a subtle blue nip slip. There you go. You know, it happens to the best of us. Um, all right. So what else do we have to talk about with the art? Okay. So last issue, I forgot to mention. So Kelly Jones, um, who did uh, uh, most, I think, of, of the season of Mists was inked by Dick Giordano. So Dick was an incredible penciler and inker. He was also the 50-something-year-old vice president of DC at the time. So one of my first assignments as assistant editor was to say, here are the pencils. Um, this is the due date. You know, can you get me this by this date? And Dick was great about it. I, I think the first time I did that, I was nervous. He ended up coming back and, and uh, helping us out a few more times. And by the way, Dick Giordano, also just a wonderful artist in his own right, did some of the, I think, I was looking this up, I hadn't realized, I think he did some of my favorite Wonder Womans from the 70s where she was in her mod mode. And uh, anyway, that's beside the point. This issue, we've got Mike Dringenberg coming back and he started, uh, I'm, I'm trying to, now everything's a blur to me, but I mean, obviously, he was, you know, on Sandman for a really long time. This is the last time that he uh, does an issue. And I I don't know the whole story with that. He's inked here uh, by George Pratt. And I know uh, Neil deliberately echoed some of the panel arrangements from issue nine. So when we've got that Nada dinner, we also have... Uh, some some sort of callback to when that original issue, uh, which Dringenberg drew, which um, which has Dream meeting Nada for the first time. Um, they're just wonderful touches here in in the picture in the in the panel where we've got Kaikul and Nada together. There's an image of two African, I believe, birds that is another callback. Um, I don't think that was in the script. I think that was a Mike Dringenberg uh, thing there. And it's um, some of my favorite uh, panels are the mobile expressiveness of the Cluricans face um, that says so much without words so that you don't need to have word balloons and dialogue in there. Um, let's see. And the other thing I just saw, uh, George Pratt, I don't know if I mentioned him. He also inked Kelly Jones's pencils in chapter five, which was the issue before this one. And he is also just an amazing artist in his own right. I think I tried to uh, put a link in the show notes so that people can see his art as well. Oh, awesome. Yeah. And for anybody who just wants it, it's georgepratt.com. So you can go and uh, check out his work there. Um, yeah, it's it's neat. Uh, I, I 
you can see the slight differences in the way that people, you know, different artists will work with this material. And it's always kind of fun to see, um, to see those differences and see how all that stuff works. Um, I, I, the colors in this one um, felt a, a little more muted, almost a little more pastel-y, mm -hmm. you know, which I thought was kind of neat, especially when we got to hell, hell being, you know, filled with white balconies and roses. I thought it was a really interesting kind of artistic touch. Oh, and the colors are, are Danny Vazo and Danny. Oh, oh, oh um, right. I'm so sorry. No, and I, I thank you because, because <laughs> you've mentioned that I get to call mm -hmm. him out and say, you yeah. know, he was wonderful. So we've had a few different colorists uh, before this, but once we're in mm -hmm. my tenure, I, Danny Vazo was just the regular colorist and mm -hmm. I loved working with him. He was great. And um, just, you know, besides being brilliant at using color for mood and storytelling, he was mm -hmm. just also a lot of fun to talk to on the phone. And since Garrulous is our, you know, he wasn't overly talkative, but he was chatty in a really fun way. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's very cool. Yeah, um, I love the way the colors were used here. And we also have that wonderful sunset scene, you know, with Lucifer. Um, but we do move between these very cool colors that we'll have in the dreaming and these really kind of like warm, uh, very sunsetty or sunrisey kind of colors, you know, these very light pinks and oranges and yellows and stuff in, uh, in hell. And of course in Australia. Um, so it's really fun to see all of that come together, but you know, I'm still developing my understanding of what each particular artist does in these different contexts. So, um, yeah, I just, I just think it's, it's really like beautifully, beautifully done. Um, and we also have a Candide reference here. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, so I feel like I was doing weird, a uh, number of footnotes for this issue. Um, but it just, <laughs> I love it. Deserved it. So the Remiel caption where he talks about how things are obviously it's towards the end. He says things are the best they could be. I'm paraphrasing here because it's the best of all possible words worlds I recognize that as a reference to Candide because full disclosure when I was a kid there weren't as many channels I was watching PBS and <laughs> Candide was a PBS televised play I think that's how I also ended up watching I Claudius anyway so I I was exposed to Voltaire's uh, satirical play and it's Anyway, it's really funny because, okay, the play itself is very, very weird. It's taking the satirical approach to everything being good mm -hmm. because you're just heaping, Voltaire is heaping tragedy on tragedy. I remember there's an old woman who had half a butt cheek eaten by pirates, uh, which really stuck with me, even though they didn't dramatize mm -hmm. yeah, that. Yeah, that will. Uh, mm -hmm. Anyway, but then I had to look it up and... Uh, I guess it's Leibniz, right? So Voltaire was satirizing Leibniz. I did take philosophy in college, but that was a couple of years ago now. <laughs> so Leibniz was trying to reconcile the idea of an all-powerful, all-knowing, and yet benevolent God with the fact that there is a shit ton of evil in the world. So mm -hmm. he, his way of reconciling it was to say, we live in the best of all po in the best of all possible worlds because if God could have come up with a better world, he would have being all benevolent. And Voltaire uh, satirized that. Mm -hmm. So in Sandman universe terms, I think it's it's kind of clear to me that Remiel's justification of God's decision to put him in charge of hell and having a hell mm -hmm. along with Duma, it, it's, it's warping Remiel. Yeah. And Remiel's sort of Leibnizian assertion that this is the best of all possible worlds, it kind of absolves God, but it also absolves Remiel of any moral responsibility for the actions he's taking. Yeah, no, I think absolutely. And it is so fun kind of watching him um, attach himself to this uh, almost zealous, zealous kind of of attachment to his role in hell and the um, and the sacredness of that role and the importance of that role. Um, it's so interesting watching him do that. And as he tries to to justify his own goodness, he ends up getting darker and darker and darker. And I just love that twist. I love that you said 
zealous because, of course, that's mm-hmm. how we get zealot. And there's that overtone mm-hmm. of fanaticism that definitely uh, yeah. goes along with a heaping side of evil. Um, so as I was thinking about this, I realized, okay, so Season of Mists kind of has a triple ending. It's got mm-hmm. a down ending where we have the new rulers of hell and it's clear that even though they're perfect, it's it's funny because I think of it as a down ending, even though it says happily ever after in hell, but it, right. it doesn't seem like the new rulers are going to be an improvement, it, perhaps even worse than the hell that was before. Yeah. Is that a down ending or an up ending? I, I think of it as a down ending, but I guess you could also I think read it's it. a dark ending. It's I a, think it's a really it's interesting It's a dark, ending. ironic But it's ending. not a happy ending. Yeah. And then we have a more unambiguous ending. We've got the mm-hmm. Lucifer enjoying his retirement and able to step outside enough to give God his mm-hmm. due and say, you know, this, yeah. this is give God credit for the ever-changing beauty of creation. And then we've got the ending with Destiny, you know, reading his book, closing the final chapter. And then we have that quote that's in the style of G.K. Chesterton. So mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm going to mention, you know, we had talked in previous episodes about how G.K. Chesterton, who was um, a writer and uh, he was, I, I just read that he was actually in a, a, he did some sort of cowboy duel with uh, George Bernard Shaw in a silent film that never got released. <laughs> so he was this wonderfully corpulent, mm-hmm. bon vivant. Um, he was also very Christian. And mm-hmm. uh, he was the model for Fiddler's Green. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, that that is uh, that is who he was. So we now we've got this uh, quote that wasn't really a G.K. Chesterton quote, because if it's in mm-hmm. Lucien's library, then that means it's a book that was never written. And mm-hmm. uh, so I went looking to see if G.K. Chesterton had said anything that we could look at that would be germane. And I got this quote, if I can put one touch of rosy sunset into the life of any man or woman, I shall feel that I have worked with God. Really interesting and nice considering Lucifer's relationship to the sunset in this issue. I like it. I like it. Um, all right. So one of the things I noticed is that when you talk about, like, I thought Clerican was just Clerican, that that was his name, but it's not. He's the Clerican. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, mm-hmm. the Clerican, it's it's a, a kind of fairy like Leprechaun. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, I looked up in Oxford Reference to just see what they said. Um, they've got three different spellings and possibly three different pronunciations, but I've already mm-hmm. murdered some Irish and bad attempt at Australian <laughs> this episode. Um, and then it's like the Clurican, the Clurican, like the plural of, I, how would you pronounce the plural of Clur, Clur, the Clurican-a? I the, don't even know. Irish spellings can be, um, yeah. I, you know, I don't want to say tricksy. I want to say kind of magical. You know, well, um, there's a there's a magic to Irish spellings and pronunciation that I am not at, I do not have access to. So people people should should definitely tell us. But anyway, so the Clurican yes. is mm-hmm. one of three kinds of solitary solitary fairy in Ireland, the other being the Leprechaun and the Far Darig. Uh, mm-hmm. He appears to be an Irish instance of the figure from European folklore known as the Buttery Spirit. Folk motif F four seventy three point six point three. Well, okay. (laughs) And uh, this is again from Oxford. Uh, The clerican likes to enter a rich man. Well, it's the the plural. So the clericans as as a as a Mm -hmm. an order of fairy, they like to enter rich people's wine cellars and drain the casks, but frighten away any servant who tries to join him. Although he prefers to stay indoors, he will, when venturing out, harness a sheep or shepherd dog and ride it for his amusement, leaving them panting and mud covered. So I guess if your dog ever disappears and comes back tired and covered in mud, that's yeah, that's a clerican. That's a clerican. I, I kind of like it. And you know what? The clerican is a little bit of a trickster. You know, in this issue, he uh, takes Nula there. She's going to be given as a gift for whatever, you know, if the if Dream does what they want him to. And then here we are in this issue 
And suddenly he's like, well, no, you're not coming home. Titania is giving you as a gift, no matter what the outcome. So that's it. And then she has to take off her, her glamour in order to live in the dreaming. Um, that's kind of a low moment. Um, but before we get talking about all of that stuff, um, and as long as we're talking about tricksters, I kind of want to get into this Loki moment, right? Here he is dressed as Susano Onomikoto. Uh, oh, you pronounce that so much better than I do. I th- oh, I thought I did a terrible. Okay, I, I, I'm terrible at pronunciations like that. And I always feel really, really bad. So I am always open to corrections. Love it. Send me your recordings, everybody who knows how to pronounce these things properly, because I don't. Um, but anyway, so he's trying to sneak out as this Japanese storm god, right? Um, and of course, you know, Dream calls him on it immediately and is like, hey, I know that you're Loki, you know? Um, and it's basically like, I don't fucking think so, you know? And then we go into this, you know, a uh, thing about about Loki and about how he can put a dream version of Loki there, but then Loki's going to owe him a favor. And I love that. I love the politics of that. I love the fact that once again, our trickster is free to roam and cause all manner of trouble because we need our tricksters out there kind of shaking things up. Um, but the thing that bothered me about all of this is like, what about Sijin? Like, I, I understand that she's not the one having the snake, you know, salivate on her release venom on her all the time and that's that but she is there and i don't know anything about that history i got norse mythology i've been listening to it it's wonderful but i haven't gotten there yet um and uh, i don't know why what set that up but she has like i as i remember she was there with the snake holding the bowl protecting loki as best she could and it's just when she transferred the bowls out that he ended up getting the, the poison in his eyes which of course was unpleasant whatever um but now he's not going back um oh what my god to her? you are this is blowing my mind i you are absolutely right and i i just want to say that i hadn't thought of it but of course you know as lousy and dysfunctional as it is to have your whole relationship consist of holding a bowl to keep the poison out of the or some of the poison out of the eyes of your you know incredibly messed up partner who keeps yeah you know messing other people up I mm-hmm. guess it's even worse if, you know, you're you're doing it only for a dream version. Although, now here's the romance writer in me, okay? So yeah. the dream <laughs> version of Loki mm-hmm. does still, it's not just an illusion, right? Mm-hmm. Because... I mean, it, isn't it? I don't think so. He's saying a dream mm-hmm. version of Loki. So I don't think mm-hmm. we can assume it's like a hologram. It is a mm-hmm. dream entity. And it might, so I guess that raises a whole other moral question. But if I were writing the romance of this, Sigin, 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 Siggy, I'm going to, Siggy, Siggy, for short, (laughs) Siggy and the dream Loki would have that deeper relationship. You know, that old Martin Gare kind of idea where the guy who isn't your husband, he, he, you know, he looks like him, but he's sort of different. And then he's kind of better. And then he's better, absolutely. They should have well, a Well, okay, but here's... Right, but, like, he's suffering. I'm sure that Loki is suffering for a reason. Um, but Sijin, Siggy, in her <laughs> job, her entire existence and purpose is to hold this bowl so that he doesn't get drooled upon. So there she is, continuing to hold that bowl. Or even in this instance, when he's gone... Just not like she's just left there with no purpose. What she's been doing? What is going on? She with could her? have gone on a biking vacation. She that could would be, be doing a spa thing. But she has to come back and hold the bowl from. Like Maybe my she concern is, I just want to know what happened to her. I want to know: is this a punishment for her? Is this? A, and I realized that I could go and probably read Norse mythology and find out, you know. Um, and I will. I'm. I'm. I'm getting there. But like, I'm just. I'm fascinated by the backstory of this is she being punished as well if she is then why why does he get a break and she doesn't why does he get to not be there and she still has to hold the stupid bowl for somebody that isn't even loki like all of that i'm just i don't know what happens we don't address it and i am fascinated and i also want somebody to rescue her from this really terrible existence and this is what happens when you fall in love with a Loki. You know, I think that, you know, that, all the well, people yeah. who love the Marvel Universe version 
um, in real life, you fall in love with, you know, a trickster, you know, with some mm-hmm. troll blood. And, um, you know, <laughs> I, no, I think that's probably trollist of me, but. <laughs> well, anyway, let's go ahead and keep moving. Um, here we have this lovely moment with Lucifer on a beach vacation. We've talked a little bit about that, but I really do love him just hanging out with some Australian dude, you know, just sitting there and enjoying the sunset and uh, the potential first story. I mean, I love how the ending of this story has seeded so much potential for other stories. I mean, I don't think anything is ever going to happen with Siggy. I would love to see that story. We've got Loki now. There's a dream version of him paying for whatever it is he did in the past. So the real version of him is going out there and is going to start stirring shit up. That's absolutely going to happen. Um, you know, and then we have Lucifer, who is, you know, just out there in the world, just a retired runner of hell. Like, what is that experience about you know like what is going to go on with him um and i think there was a tv series that tried to answer that question um so i mean there's based that, on and the, that, I the think spin-off comic based on the spin-off comic yeah. yeah so um so i'm really interested in all of that stuff and seeing all of that stuff uh where all these um potential stories are happening um it's just leaving it's leaving fertile ground fully seeded for like a million different stories to tell which i absolutely love um but here's the thing like i you know i have my issues with with both nula and nada being done dirty in this issue um and anyway, so like I, Nula is passed around like property and she is a gift. And yes, it was Titania who ordered it. But, you know, just because a woman did it doesn't mean it's not misogynistic. Um, and, you know, Nula, we have her always in these various states of undress. Apparently there is something about her body that if she puts any clothing on it, it just slides right the hell off. Um, and then we leave her in this space. Like, this is the thing where I'm just like, wait a minute. You know, why is she suffering? What did she do aside from eavesdrop and eat flowers? Like she hasn't done anything wrong. She's in this space and she can't even wear her glamour. So she's got to look a little like, you know, and we have her. And, you know, as a woman with brown hair, by the way, I I reject the idea that blonde equals beautiful and brown is automatically frumpy because then her hair goes brown and she's just like sitting there, you know, looking like, I don't know, like an ordinary girl. Like she doesn't look that she doesn't look that bad well, to me, like, you know. Um, she's more like, I, I think that there's, a, I mean, I think there are a lot of guys who would prefer the more wafy, her hair is kind of a little more punky. She's cute with the ears. Yes, very you know, punky and cute. She's yeah. elfin instead of, you know, bodacious. Yeah, but it's really about what she prefers. And clearly she does not prefer her her image to be that way. Um, but, I, you know, it's all... I'm sitting there looking at her and I'm thinking, okay, this is terrible. And now there's a story seeded for that. And I really want to see something happen with Nula. Is there anything like, I don't want too many spoilers, but like, am I, okay, I guess, I guess, am I going to be disappointed? Should I stop waiting for a Nula story? Yeah, there's, okay. So just, I, I love Nula. Without spoiling. Yes, exactly. I love Nula. We will see if Mm -hmm. she is now part of the dreaming staff mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um so okay. so she will we will see her again and i do think that taking away her glamour is it's kind of i mean yes you should have your right to costume mm-hmm. yourself the way you want but i think it it is it sends her on a journey that is not a bad journey be. in terms of sure. knowing yourself and all right. Well, as long as we as long as we continue with her and we don't just leave her there, you know, then I think that I'm I'm a little bit happier with that. Um, Nada, what happens with Nada? I, I got to say, I really like that she's like, oh, you think you should apologize? I love that she gives Dream just hell for everything that he's done to her. I love that she smacks him across the face and is like, Give screw him. you, dude. I just I need to All point out that. you said giving him hell. Giving him hell. Yes. She is giving him a little bit of hell, considering the 10,000 years of hell that she has been through. Um, So we have all that stuff. And I like when all of that happens, I am into it. I'm like, this is great. Finally, we're having Dream actually, you know, deal with the consequence of what he's done. And then a moment later, they're kissing. Everything's fine. And she's like, well, I guess I could have just left if I wanted to, as though being in hell 
was her fault, her responsibility, as though she had done anything wrong to deserve to be in hell in the first place. Um, and I guess at that point, I was like, I am just done with the nada stuff. Like, I am so angry on her behalf. And I feel like, I mean, we end it with her making a choice out of two options that Dream gave her. And I would just rather at least it be her idea. This is what I want to do. This is what you are going to do for me. And it ends up being this thing where, I don't know, it just felt weird. And then there she is, brand new baby, won't remember any of it, you know, so I guess that's good. Um, but I just, I find the Nada stuff so incredibly frustrating um, that while there's stuff here that I really do appreciate, and I think is very, very cool. Um, at the same time, I'm just like, oh my God, just, just get, give her her anger, allow her her justified rage. Well, you know, so two things, I just want to jump in. I, yes. I know that initially from the script, Neil wanted the dinner with Nada to, you know, take most of the issue up. And just mm -hmm. because he didn't have enough space, he had to condense that a bit. Yeah. But I, you know, I, I really appreciate your perspective because not only are you coming to this fresh and you're not me, mm -hmm. but you're also coming to this, you know, 30 years after I did. And I think that a lot of our attitudes have changed and, you know, hopefully we have progressed in all kinds of ways. That said, my reading of that line was mm -hmm. that, let's see if I can, I think that because Nada was so angry, justifiably so, at Morpheus mm -hmm. for so long, that it took, it took her forgiving him to take another look and to say, well, actually, I had some role to play in this as well. And that kind of fits in with this Sandman universe philosophy that mm -hmm. the, the damned are in hell. You know, Lucifer told us the damned are in hell yeah. because they choose to be, even if they're not mm -hmm. aware of it as a choice. And and I, I think that it it only makes sense. Why would Nada then be the only person in hell who's there? Because he put her there. But because not everybody was put there by dream. He condemned her to hell because he had the power to do it because she hurt his pride. Like she didn't do anything wrong. So that's the thing that just makes yeah, me mad is if she had lived a life where she was evil and doing terrible things and all of that stuff. And then she went to hell justifiably because of what the only thing she did was try to like to push him away because she wanted to save her people. So she didn't do anything wrong. She didn't deserve that torment. She didn't ask for it. And the idea that she would say, well, I could have just walked away. This is a situation where we have someone who did nothing wrong. And the thing is, is that you are, you're not responsible for the bad things that people do to you. They're not your fault or they're not your fault, but they are your responsibility to heal from. And like, so the idea that she's taking responsibility for her healing from this point forward, I absolutely am on board with that. But the idea that she's like, oh, I guess I could have just walked away and I didn't. So it's really my fault that I spent 10,000 years in well, hell. That does not sit with me. Again, yeah. I mean, I, I don't view it quite that way. But now that I think about it, I mean, I'm not sure exactly how someone lands in hell. We already have questioned <laughs> those those mm -hmm. babies, those um, not full-term babies from the dead boys. Mm -hmm. I mean, what were they doing in hell? It's like their big sin yeah. was not being full-term, you know, so... Not being baptized or whatever. There's a lot there's of things a, about hell that are not... But I think that, you know, for the sense. purposes mm -hmm. of the storyline, um, you know, we're in Dante's version of hell, but I will mm -hmm. talk more about that later on. <laughs> anyway, so... Let me ask you, so you've raised all of these, you know, a lot of the mm -hmm. really legitimate issues about women and agency. Um, do you have any, you know, propositions for what, what could help this moving ahead? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that like for Nula, 
if we didn't have her being passed around so much and so incredibly passive, um, I understand that she was offered like property. I understand that she, you know, that this is a situation that happened. Titania made this gift and there are rules and she can't be rejected, all that kind of stuff. Um, I'm also kind of interested in the, you know, the beautiful woman um, who defines herself through her beauty, having that kind of stripped from her, I think is a really kind of interesting space. But I would also like to see her have some activity I would like to see her like I would love to see her trying to get revenge on Titania I would love to see her trying to get back to fairy I would love to see her with a goal that she's trying to do and then using whatever power is given to her in the dreaming to accomplish that I think that would be great so I would love to see her with a little um, agency um, for Nada again I would I would like it if she made the decision if at least at the end like the thing is that when you love somebody you love somebody and the fact that she kisses him, it's a slap, slap, kiss kind of instance. I, I can understand that because she did love him. Like, and even though he did terrible things, like you, you love people, you love people. Like it just happens, you know? Um, but I would like for it to have been her decision. She's like, I'm leaving you. You know, I'm moving past this whole thing. I don't want to remember any of it. This is the solution that I want. You're going to make that happen for me. Um, rather than it being him saying, here, you have two options. Pick one. That takes all of her agency away as well. Um, you know, for Sijin, it would have been nice to have Loki at least ask about what happens to her. I think what I'm most offended by is that here is this woman who has been sharing your terrible, terrible fate for all of these years, holding this bowl over you. I'm sure that some of that poison dripped on her skin, too. Um, and Loki's concern for her and her well-being and what happens to her is zero. Doesn't even think about her. He's like, I'm out of here. That's it. You know, you're going to replace me. I don't care about anything else. Um, so, and, and I would really love to see a wild and vengeful Siggy show up in future issues. I don't think it's going to happen, but I would love to see it. And through all of this, you know, like a, a particular instance, a single instance of this kind of thing where a woman is, is stripped of her agency in a story like may not actually be necessarily like really bad thing like I think in Nula's circumstance that again seeds the ground for more interesting stories coming from her later that I would love to see we'll see how that goes apparently there is stuff coming um, but I think that like because culturally and historically for so long women have been side notes have been stripped of their agency in stories that when you see it it's one of those things where um, where you want to be uh, like aware of it when it happens so that as a woman who reads these stories, you don't end up feeling like like you are being shoved, shoved aside and that your concerns are not important, that, you know, not as concerns are not important. Absolutely. And, you know, it was interesting. I was listening to Faded Mates podcast and Sarah McLean mm -hmm. was talking about, you know, she never rereads all of her older books, but she was trying to look back at, I think it was nine rules for romancing a rake. I thought, I'm mm -hmm. not sure. And, and she, you know, she originally wrote it in 2010 and she wanted to make sure that she hadn't, you know, used any language that she wouldn't, you know, use today. And so I think for all of us who are writers, you know, we we might revisit our own work and think, oh, well, that, you know, there are ways I might handle that differently. And of course, we'll mm -hmm. get a chance to see some of that with uh, with the Netflix series. Yeah, no, I think that and also I think that like we need to as readers just be more critical, like Writers need to be more sensitive. We want to be careful about what we do. But again, like some of the things in here do not make for bad story. You know, um, it's just something that you want to be aware of. But I think that as readers, because the stories that we get are so incredibly powerful in shaping how we think about ourselves, others, everything in the world. And story has so much power that we need to look at it with a critical eye and and say, this is this may be true. This isn't necessarily true, but it's a hell of a fucking story. You know, like we have a responsibility as readers of the culture to to look at that 
you know, and I think that that's part of what we do here, you know, talking about this stuff here. Um, one of the things, though, that was fascinating about this um, and that I didn't really notice until you'd pointed it out to me is that Dream shapeshifts. I mean, I noticed it when he became kind of cool, you know, and when he was also black in those scenes with Nada, um, but also that he was cat-like with Bast, that he was kind of reflecting whoever he was talking to back at them. And so we kind of have a dream in the eye of the beholder older situation here. Absolutely. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, that was in this script as a note to uh, the penciler, to Mike Dringenberg. But we've also seen, didn't we see him becoming kind of Martian looking to the Martian Manhunter? Um, I didn't notice that, but now I'm fascinated by it. I have noticed some shifting, like, of course, in the thousand cats, yes. in the a dream of, of a thousand cats, he, he was actually feline in that. Um, but to have like some subtle characteristics, physical characteristics of shape-shifting, where he's reflecting the person or entity that he's, he's dealing with back at themselves. I find that really interesting. It, it felt subtle. It was subtle enough that I didn't notice it. It, okay, so th this has got me thinking, this is not in the script, and this is simply a mm -hmm. Sandman cosmology question. So mm -hmm. humans usually go around thinking that we are sort of the only enlightened uh, beings with self-awareness on this planet, only we have souls. And therefore, in the traditional depictions of heaven and hell, you usually just have humans, right? Or maybe mm -hmm. all animals can be in heaven. But if animals have the same kind of agency, you know, if the cats mm -hmm. can have a feline Morpheus, mm -hmm. why are there no animals in hell? Interesting. Interesting. I don't know. It's a good question. Uh, maybe we'll we'll see that or figure that out at some point. All right. So now it is time for Lucien's Library, where Elisa gives us some of her uh, experience and perspective behind the scenes. Note that there may be spoilers in any given Lucien's Library segment. We do not guarantee no spoilers. So if that is a problem for you, you may want to skip ahead a little bit. But this is always so interesting. I would honestly, you know, live with the spoilers if I was you. All right. <laughs> so what do you have in Lucien's Library? Well, first of all, back back. Back to hell. Um, in Heimbender's yes. book, uh, uh -huh. The Sandman Companion, he asks Neil if this is his personal conception of hell. And Neil said, absolutely not. This is Dante's hell. In mm -hmm. Neil's version of hell, he said, he's staring at a blank page with no original characters or ideas, which is basically Maddox uh, hell in the Calliope yeah. story. Mm -hmm. so yeah, I, hell is for writers, right? Hell <laughs> is for writers that's definitely the writer's block is is certainly one one form of hell that i i have been to yeah i can definitely empathize with that also, it, uh, we're seeing some of the, you know, you've got some clips from uh, Neil's scripting here, and uh, there's some conversation about British TV in the early 90s and, and, and porn. So I'm really yes. interested in that. So Neil seemed <laughs> to have always had the TV on in the background. I think in a previous script, mm -hmm. he complained that there was nothing but the same news snippet where the, nothing new had happened, but the newscasters kept talking about the same thing. Um, and he wanted the TV movie. And mm -hmm. um, and then on this on page 13, panel six, there is this wonderfully long aside. So I'm going to read out the description. I love it. Page 13, panel six. Clurican looking straight at us for once being entirely serious. The self-mocking facade has vanished completely. Clurican, reject Titania's gift, if you will. But the queen will not be best pleased. And Nula herself will risk her severest displeasure. Page 13, panel seven. The Sandman. The way he looks, parentheses, it's really bizarre. Late at night on TV, every now and then they show Spanish or French TV awkwardly voiceovered. Every now and again they drift over into porn, at which point after a week or two, someone hears about it, parentheses, because no one ever saw the show, it having been bought in a job lot of series, the program buyer would have been shown a relatively innocuous one, close parentheses, and the show vanishes. <laughs> I just mention this because of a slightly surprising scene in the middle of a very tacky French costume drama, almost definitely guaranteeing it won't be back on next week, close parentheses, is, well, really ever so slightly amused by all this. He doesn't look like it bothers him very much. He's had all sorts of big problems. This one is petty by comparison. Sandman. Hmm. <laughs> I am fascinated by these little 
you know, like insertions of just whatever Neil was experiencing at the time. I mean, this functions as both a script and kind of a personal journal. Um, and I, I love it. That's it's so great. All this stuff that's coming up from the scripting. Um, so that is adorable. I am dying to know what was the tacky French costume drama with I some know. porn in it. Um, I know. I like it. <laughs> All right, Elisa, what's your favorite page? The page with the Sandman, Anula, and Clurican. I mean, even before I knew about the tacky French porn, I just mm-hmm. loved seeing Clurican's facade drop. There's this moment mm-hmm. where he's, you can see he's worried about his sister. And yeah. there's also this great moment where Mike Dringenberg has Clurican's hand on Nula's shoulder and it's breaking the panel border. And it's just a little touch, but yeah. I love it. Yeah, no, it is really cool. Um, for me, I have to say, Remiel watching the demons pouring back into hell, and he's on this pristine white balcony from above with these roses in full bloom. Um, and there is something about all of that that is so dark. Like Lucifer had fallen and and seemed to feel that he belonged there, that this was his place. Remiel is above everything like he is placing himself literally above it all you know watching it all happen and deciding what his role is and i think that that remiel's um whole play within this uh this final issue is so much about the you know the seizing and the reframing of a narrative that he doesn't like he doesn't want to deal with the reality so he's creating this this narrative around everything um that is based on him being really super good you know Mm. and not being bad and i just i think it's so fascinating i think the visual of that was just absolutely beautiful i loved it um so what's your favorite part of the narrative oh gosh i think it's dream walking nada into her next life and affirming that he's gonna love her even when she no longer remembers him i love the feeling of this and i love the way the art has them sort of disappearing into a mist I think it may yeah. be one of the times, I mean, usually wouldn't death be handling this transition? I guess maybe, but Dream seems to be uh, be taking it over for her. But we don't really get a sense of what death does or, you know, the idea of reincarnation is something that, you know, now is a textual part of the world building. Um, so I think that that's really interesting. Um, but, you know, and and with all of the stuff that I don't like about the way Nada is kind of done dirty in this in this issue, um, I do love this ending. Um, I love the um, the the kindness and the love that is just there despite everything else and the fact that he is going to continue to love her um, and has you know now that he's acknowledged how wrong it was what he did um, it feels like there's that space for him to love her you know um, that that becomes possible now um, in a way that just wasn't possible before and I think it's really you know lovely so I definitely uh, I can see why that's your favorite part it was definitely a runner-up for me although I have to say once again for me my favorite part in the story is just Remiel getting into one day in hell he's already corrupting the narrative deciding that torture is a good thing Um, the seduction into power I love all of that that his reaching for goodness brings him darker and darker and darker and darker and that is such a lovely little twist it's one of my favorite things All right. If you enjoyed this conversation, would like to join in, connect with the show on Twitter, follow at Chipperish and use the hashtag Endless Podcast or send your comments or questions to Endless at Chipperish.com. This episode of Endless was brought to you by the Chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why Endless is coming to you free and ad free right now. So thank you to Abby, Alice, Christina, Erica, Jonathan, Kevin, Kristen, Rose, Sarah, Shelley, Stephania, and Stephanie. And this week's special message for our power producers, I am here only because of you. But perhaps 
it is a blessing. To find out how you too can support Chipperish Media, visit patreon.com slash chipperish. Other ways to show your support, write a great review on Apple Podcasts, tell your friends about the show, or smell the reek of burning fat in the air, listen to the screams and the whimpers and the moans, feel the pain. Ah, this episode of Endless was edited by Chipperish content editor Jack Cram. Jack, we will hurt you, and we are not sorry, but we do not do it to punish you. We do it to redeem you, and because we love you. We are going on a hiatus until the television series starts, so when we come back, we'll be back with The Sandman Season 1, Episode 1. Until then, those sunsets are bloody marvelous, you old bastard. Satisfied? Satisfied?